Wow. Pretty awesome morning so far. Amen? Amen. Amen. We are just so thankful you're here with us today. Um, I want to start by kind of sharing a self-revelation with you. And I don't know if this is something you picked up on as well. COVID really taught us a lot, didn't it? Uh, it taught us a lot about ourselves. I mean, I learned the value of community. And one of the things I learned through COVID is how much I hate Zoom, right? Anybody with me on that? Like, it was terrible. And some of you guys, I know y'all are still doing Zoom. Uh, we have a lot of missionaries over on the field, and that's kind of how I do my primary communication with most of them. And uh, I hate it. I enjoy connecting with them, but I hate the Zoom calls. And one of the things I learned over Zoom, and it kind of hit me this week in preparing for the message, is that when I'm on a Zoom call, I will wind up looking at myself more than I'll look at the person that's on the screen. And here's the thing. I don't think I'm the only one. I polled our staff on Thursday afternoon. Every single one that was in the office said the exact same thing. What is it, right? Like, do you, do you struggle with this? Like, just constantly looking at myself while I'm talking. It's the most vain thing ever. And what I find interesting about it is, if you really think about it, the reason we do that is we want to see how we're being perceived by others, right? Like, we want to make sure there's nothing hanging out of our nose or want to make sure there's nothing in our teeth. But we are so fixated on making sure we're together. And anytime we have any kind of a reflection or a camera, we're fixated on the physical. We want to see what it is we look like. And this whole series has really been about this, this question of, although that's a big focus in our lives, how often do we look in the mirror of our soul and see if what's truly there is what's there? Like for so many of us, that's, that's where we fall into. And we've looked at that the last couple of weeks, that when we look into the mirror of our soul, there's so much stuff clouding what our identity in Christ should be. And we've said, we've asked this question in this series each time, and it's this question, what are the current lies the world is feeding you when you look in the mirror? What is your identity? Are you seeing truth or just the smoke of deception? And thank God that with every deceiving thought that the world throws at us, there is a corresponding truth that we find in God's word. And these truths are centered around three words. And we've kind of talked about this these last couple weeks. The first word is origin. Second word is existence. And third word is legacy. Our origin is saying, I'm created in the image of God. I'm created male or female. I'm created at conception in the womb. Last week we talked about existence. Existence says I'm created with a God-centered purpose. I'm created for an others-focused community that the truth is you are created to glorify God and enjoy Him forever through the loving environment of community. And this is where we were last week. And today I want to finish this series with our final and third word. The word legacy. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. I want to start uh, really where we left off last week. We've been in Genesis really the last two weeks. 
I want to start there this morning. Uh, the Lord has just, God has just created Adam. And it's interesting, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 give us similar accounts or the same account of the creation of Adam with different details in the chapter. But then in verse 18, and we looked at this last week, God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Verse 21, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into, into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. This is pretty special Beautiful passage right here in the second chapter of the whole book. God orchestrates the creation of Eve and immediately ordains the identity of what biblical marriage is and what biblical sexuality is. One man, one woman, one lifetime. He not only gives them biblical marriage, but also a command with purpose and even pleasure. Genesis 1, just flip the page over. It's probably right there on the next page. Genesis 1, verse 27 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created both of them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, this is really the first commandment we see in Scripture. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God designed our sexuality. God designed marriage and ultimately God did these things to create for us our legacy. The truth statement for this morning is, is, is kind of a simple one, but it's this. I am created to leave a legacy. I am created to leave a legacy. Possibly a physical legacy, right? Possibly a physical legacy. What's a physical legacy? Children. This is what we see in the passage. A biblically married couple has the privilege to uphold and fulfill the first commandment to be fruitful and multiply. And it's an interesting world we live in right now because I've heard so many couples, so many married couples talk about kids in such a weird way. I'll hear things like, yeah, we're not going to have kids. Or, you know what, we're, we're going to have two kids and then we're done, right? Like, that's it. 
And what I very rarely hear, and I'm not saying that the Lord will call you into a marriage where you don't have kids or one kid or two kids or five kids. Absolutely, there's truth in that. And the Lord reveals that to us. But very seldom do I hear married couples say this. Lord, show me what you desire to entrust into my care. Children are not a hobby to consider. They are a blessing to fulfill. And for so many of us, man, we, we get into this mindset of it's my life, I'm going to do things, I'm going to choose things the way I want. And, and what better thing to ask God about, right? The blessing, the legacy of children. If the Lord leads you to not have children, that's okay, but at least consult him, right? So, so, so here's where it is. Many of you will possibly have or already have the opportunity to leave a, le- a physical legacy of children that I'm created to leave a legacy possibly a physical legacy but definitely a spiritual legacy this is the word disciples disciples Matthew 28 19 through 20 you guys know this verse go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you this wasn't a command for just husband and wives it wasn't just a command for fathers and mothers this was a command for every person that follows Jesus every person who's called to singlehood every person who's called to marriage to definitely leave a spiritual legacy whether you're married or single you are created to leave a spiritual legacy to make disciples think about the number one guy in the epistles that's making a spiritual legacy I mean, Paul is a single man, and yet he still sees his mandate to leave a legacy. That you are a disciple because someone discipled you. Someone discipled them all the way back to the original disciples and apostles of Jesus. Isn't that crazy? And here's the thing. Jesus told this command And now you are committed and you are commanded, whether you're single or married, to continue and fulfill this command. That you are created to leave a legacy, possibly a physical legacy, but definitely a spiritual legacy. And as we look in the mirror of our soul, as we look at who we are in Christ, what our identity is... That I'm created to leave a legacy. I believe that the current greatest assault on your legacy and my legacy is unbiblical and ungodly sexual activity. I believe this is the current assault on both physical and spiritual legacy that you are attempting to leave here on this earth and guys I'm gonna just tell you this is a difficult thing to to talk about I'll be honest I can't remember a time I'm sure it's happened but I can't remember a time I've been as nervous to talk about this as this morning I, I literally was over here a minute ago my hand was just shaking a little bit and normally this is not something that bothers me to present but the truth is this is this is a serious subject and, and this morning is going to be a little different than most mornings. I, I have a ton of scripture. And the reason I'm doing that this morning is I want to show you this isn't just some opinion from some man. This is what God's word tells us 
about sexuality. And we said this two weeks ago, and I want to kind of reiterate this, that there are three groups of people in this room right here and now. There's a group in this room that has lived their lives out in a way that's sexually honoring to God, whether you're single or married or wherever. And for you, this, this message this morning is just an encouragement to continue to do that, to abstain from sexual immorality and to continue to live a life of holiness and purity before God. And then there's other folks in the room that you've got maybe some years on you, maybe you've some experience in, in your life, and, and the truth is, this is something that you used to struggle with. Something in your past that even to this day, when it's talked about from the stage or in, on a radio station or podcast, it still brings pain because you remember the hurt and the shame associated with that past sin or that past lifestyle. And then there's some in the room today that you are currently living in this lie. You are currently living in deception right now. And it's painful, right? It's painful to talk about something that you might not be doing right. But here's where we're at. Jesus offers amazing things for us in his word. For those of us that have not fallen into sexual temptation, he offers us wisdom to continue to stay out of it. For those of us that have fallen into it and it's in our past and there's pain and there's hurt and there's shame, he offers restoration and mercy. And for those of us that may be living under the deception right now, he offers love that can lead you to repentance, to walk out of that life and that sin that so easily besets you. 1 Corinthians 6. I want to start with this verse. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18. It's going to come up on the screen. It says, flee from sexual immorality. Now this, this word flee is a present imperative uh, word in the Greek. And really what that means is it's not just flee. It really means constantly flee. Like always be fleeing. Always be fleeing. This is not a challenge to be met. It's a trap to be escaped. You don't rationalize a reason with sexual immorality. You run from it. Why? It tells you in the second part of the verse. Because every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Now, I've heard people say this for years, that all sin is sin, right? Sin is sin, whether I'm lying or stealing or murdering or whatever, sin is sin. And this is true in the sense that all sin eternally separates us from God, right? One sin or a thousand sins eternally separate us from God and create the necessity for Jesus' sacrifice. That's absolutely true. But this very verse shows that God views sin differently and there are even more devastating consequences to some sins. Because sexual intimacy is the deepest uniting of two people. Its misuse corrupts on the deepest human level. Sexual sin is not only a sin against God and against other people, it's sin against yourself. There is not one single instance in all of God's word 
where God advocates or celebrates sex outside of a marriage relationship between a husband and a wife. Not one. So what are the current deceptions that we see in our world? The first one I want to talk about, and you hear it through this phrase, love is love. Love is love. And really what I want to talk about with this is unnatural sexual activity. Unnatural sexual activity. This common phrase that's been heard in the, pa- in the past decade is a phrase that's used to approve LGBTQ lifestyles. Meaning that love expressed by an individual or a couple is valid regardless of sexual orientation or gender identity of their partner. In short, saying, I can sexually express myself however I choose and with whoever I choose. And it's gone even beyond that. Because now they've added another component to that. It's now also, I can marry whoever I choose. And although this sounds noble and inclusive... It's truthfully unnatural. It's unnatural because the physical legacy of multiplying the earth, the first commandment given, is only possible by virtue of the biological differences between men and women. That one man and one woman create or birth a child. Clearly, homosexuality does not reflect God's design or legacy for humanity. Romans 1 tells us this. It shows us the nature of this kind of activity. Verse 24 says, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Why? Here's why. Because they exchanged the truth about God For a lie and worshiped and served the creature, the creation, rather than the creator. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged, there's that word exchange. Their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Romans kind of alludes to this, but I want you to think about where this deception can take us if we're not careful, where it's already taken us. But think about where this leads. If love is love, the way they're using that term, is it then moral to sexually express myself with an animal? Or to sexually express myself with a child? There's this downward spiral. And it's not going to end. You see this here in Romans. 
this downward spiral of people's identity being wrapped up in their selves and in what they want and what they want to fulfill in themselves. And it just spirals downward even into unnatural relationships and unnatural activity. Some ask, why is it some people have sexual desire for the opposite gender and others have sexual desire for the same gender? That's a great question. But whether you're heterosexual or homosexual, the Bible is clear that every one of us is born with a bend toward sin. And just because we may have a desire toward a specific sexual sin doesn't mean that we should act upon it. Tempting desires don't define sexual identity. Conscious decisions define sexual identity. That There are people right now in our world, many people in our world right now, that, that truly have a, a tempting desire to the LGB lifestyle, yet live in Christ. Why? Because they abstain from sexual thought and activity so that they can stay close to God. And I'm going to tell you, I think about those people and I'm like, man, that is not easy. To just live a life completely rejecting and, and going against that temptation that's there. It's not easy. And sometimes I look at that and think, man, it's, 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 it's not fair, right? But they recognize the authority of God. That it's not their tempting desires that define their identity in Christ. No, it's their conscious decisions of what to do with the temptation that's coming into their life. Yet our culture proclaims if you were born with a desire, then it's essential to your nature to carry it out. All the while, churches have endorsed and affirmed this sin or stayed silent on the issue. This must change. Instead of teaching about sexual diversity and sexual inclusion, we need to get back to teaching about redemption and repentance. This has been called sin for over four to 6,000 years. It's been called sin, and yet now it's celebrated. Culture says Christians should just get with the times. We know more about homosexuality now than back then. Well, maybe so. But do we suggest we know more than God? Either all of Scripture is God-breathed or it isn't. We either believe Christ and his words or we don't. And guys, we, we have to be so careful because the church that we're in, man, how are we being perceived to the world? There is such a line of this idea of truth and love, right? It's both truth in love. It's not just one and it's not just the other. It's both that we desire to walk with people to show them the darkness and the deception that they're living under. The second deception, I've heard it in this phrase and it's kind of a new, newer phrase to me. I never heard this growing up. But the millennial generation has kind of coined this phrase. And the deception phrase kind of goes like this. Try before you buy. 
Try before you buy. It's premarital sexual activity. For some in this room, you may wholeheartedly agree and amen with where the Bible stands on unnatural sexual activity and yet fall silent knowing that the relationship you're currently in, you're sleeping with someone outside of marriage. How will we know if we're right for each other if we don't try this important part of a relationship? Close to 80% of unmarried church-going conservatives that are currently dating are having sex. How will we know? I'm going to ask the question again. How will we know if we're right for each other if we don't try this important part of this relationship? The problem with the question is they don't understand the context of what it is. Sex is not a prerequisite to be tested before a wedding night. Sex is a pleasure to be enjoyed within a marriage covenant. Biblical marriage allows and encourages the personal enjoyment and sexual pleasure of one another. God has mysteriously and gloriously designed this one flesh union in marriage to display the love Christ has for the church. And with every single sexual encounter, you are undermining the gospel you claim to believe while mocking the heart of God you claim to worship. That there's this disconnect with so many people that, that truly are in relationships and they'll say amen to unnatural things, right? They're like, oh yeah, we're, we don't agree with that, we don't endorse that, we don't affirm that, amen. And yet come into a place like this and raise their hands and sing songs about Christ being our firm foundation. And yet the weak doesn't reflect any kind of resemblance of holiness or purity. 1 Corinthians 7, 2 and 9 says this, Because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Now this is Paul talking. Paul's a single man. And there's clearly times where the Lord calls people into singlehood. But Paul's addressing this here. He's saying in verse 9, If they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. For those that have a strong desire for marriage, God's word encourages single men and women to be married and to abstain from premarital sex until that wedding day. This is what God's word says. The third deception that I want to mention this morning we hear it in many different ways. And actually, uh, kind of talked to John and Ginger this week. They are uh, some marriage counselors here in our church. They do a lot of marriage counseling. And I asked them to kind of tell me what the common phrase or the common theme of what they're hearing in regards to this type of sexual activity is. And they said it's, it boils down to this. I deserve to be happy. I deserve to be happy. We're talking about extramarital sexual activity. This is one of the most common phrases that they hear or the underlying theme in what they're hearing when they're talking to marriage couples that are dealing with this issue of adultery. 
that what we learn is that when we get married, everything at first seems great, right? Like there's no, no flaws, no character flaws that we see in that other person. And then we're married to that person for five years or two years or three years. And we start to realize, hey, this is difficult. Like it's not just a walk in the park. Like marriage is tough. Marriage is a commitment. Marriage is difficult work that has to be put in. And what happens a lot of times somewhere along the way between jobs and careers and children and missed dates, they begin to possibly lose that feeling of happiness, that feeling of love that they once had. And the problem is they're basing all of that on a feeling. Feeling is not love, covenant and commitment is love. Hebrews 13.4 says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous uh, person. Yet for many people, in those moments, they would rather just be happy. They want to feel that feeling of happiness that they used to have, and they think it's somewhere out there, outside of their marriage. And they don't realize it's a slow fade until the, into the bed of adultery. That the common theme is I deserve happiness or I deserve to be happy, but for some people, you know what their, their common thing is said? The other common thing that's said? How did I get here? She was just a friend. He was just a co-worker. How did we get to this place? You see, adultery doesn't start in a defiled bed. It starts in an unguarded conversation. It starts in an unguarded text. It starts in an unguarded Facebook message that turns into an inappropriate conversation and eventually will move into an inappropriate action and behavior. Proverbs 5 and 7 confirms this. The writer of Proverbs, Solomon, he says this, for the lips of a forbidden woman, you you could say man there, for the lips of a forbidden person, they drip honey. Their speech is smoother than oil, but in the end, she is bitter as wormwood. Sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet, this forbidden woman over here, her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to the grave. Why should you be intoxicated with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? Verse 23 says, he dies for lack of discipline. And because of his great folly, he is led astray. Adultery is this, he dies, she dies for lack of discipline. And because of his great folly, because of her great folly, they are led astray. Proverbs 7.21 says this, With much seductive speech, this adulteress, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter. 
He does not know that it will cost him his life. Some consequences are for keeps. We've got to be so careful. So careful to not trade a fleeting, passionate moment for our legacy. For the respect of our children. For the trust of our spouse. And it's not going to start in a bed. It's going to start with an unguarded conversation. With an emotional connection to someone. And for some of you in this room, you're, you're not in an adulterous physical relationship. But man, you are in an unguarded conversation. And it's been teetering into that inappropriate conversation area. Man, you were just one step away, one step away of being an ox that goes to slaughter, that does not know that it will cost you your life. This is a deception that's out in our world. The last deception that I want to talk about, I've heard this phrase before. And I'm just going to be real with you. As a teenager, this was the phrase that I used in my own life with this, own, with this deception in my own world. The phrase is this, I'm not hurting anyone. It's self-fulfilling sexual activity. And I know this is an uncomfortable one for us to talk about. I, hopefully all of them put a check in our spirit. But this one's tough to talk about. There are many that instead of a sexual, physical encounter with someone will fulfill sexual lust with their own eyes and mind. Some may even try to argue that this protects them from a physical encounter with someone else. Clearly, they do not understand the nature of sin and lust. It always leaves a desire for more. That what you sow, you're going to reap. So sow a thought, reap an act. Reap an act, or excuse me, sow an act, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny. Reap a legacy. Jesus said in Matthew 5, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus is saying it's not just the physical act with another person. It's something that's occurring in our hearts. It's something that's occurring in our minds. According to Jesus, it is sinful even to look at someone who is not your spouse and entertain sexual thoughts. He, he'll go on to talk about this, that if your right eye offends you, take it out. Like if this is a problem, he's saying, hey, remove the issue of lust from your life. Like go to extreme measures. It doesn't mean we all need to be walking around with one eye or no eye. What it does mean is take this serious. Several years ago I was 
in Starbucks, and uh, I was sitting there drinking a coffee. I was with some students, actually. It was back when I was a youth pastor. And I'll never forget this. This man walks in. He's in his late 70s, early 80s, I could guess, and he has an eye patch. He only has one eye, and he's sitting at this little, little coffee stand, and this young woman walks in, and literally, I'm watching this guy, 70s, 80s, and he is trying everything he can to strain his eye, his one good eye, to see this woman. In fact, at one point, she moves across to another place in the restaurant, in the place, and he gets up and moves where he can have a better view with his one eye. And I thought to myself, what a terrible legacy. That this man with his one good eye, still at 70 and 80, can't stop looking. What's thought between the ears is just as important as what's done between the legs. Every time you look with your eyes and think with your mind something that is impure and unholy, it affects your legacy. Dads, every time you mess with this and look through this at something unholy and unwholesome, it is going to come and affect your children. Single people in the room, maybe you're not married, maybe you have no intent in being married, it's affecting your spiritual legacy, what you can do for Christ. Lust is a big deal to God. So here's my last question for you. It's the last time we're asking it. What do you see in the mirror? What do you see in the mirror? Is your sexual identity based on God's word or what the world says? The truth is, the truth is every one of you in here, like it or not, you are leaving a legacy. And your legacy can be filled with shame, can be filled with destruction, can be filled with selfishness. But you are created to leave a legacy of honor and purity for generations to follow and imitate. That if you're married in the room, your wife, your spouse, your children, they're counting on you. They're counting on you. If you're a college student in the room right now, your future, your legacy, not just a physical legacy, a spiritual legacy in the future, it's counting on you. And our world is going full tilt, full force to assault that legacy. Are you living for that legacy or for your own sexual gratification? If you would, go ahead and bow your heads and close your eyes. The truth is, Every single one of us is seeking a way that seems right to us. 
and that seems to bring satisfaction. And yet God's word speaks into a divided world of sexual sinners and tells us that we have all gone astray. Whether you're, married, or whether you're male or female, whether you're married or divorced, whether you're single or dating, whether you're heterosexual, homosexual, each of us has turned to our own way. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus took the penalty himself for all of our adultery, for all of our promiscuity, for all of our pornography, and every single lust we've ever had or will ever have. And for all who will turn from themselves and trust in him and his design, he promises his peace, strength, and wisdom among the cultural sea of sexual sin and sexual confusion. What will be your legacy? What will be your legacy? I know this is uncomfortable. I know this is something that's difficult to talk about and even difficult to hear. God desires a physical legacy for many and a spiritual legacy for everyone in this room that lives, outlives you. Are you going to ruin it with a fleeting passion, a fleeting look, a fleeting thought? Are you going to stay pure and holy so that generations to follow can look at your example and say, I want to be like that. So in this moment, we're going to stand and sing. In fact, you can go ahead and stand to your feet. And I just want to invite you in this moment to just evaluate your own heart. Maybe physically you've been faithful to your spouse for 40 years. That's awesome. But maybe there's this fleeting thought that keeps coming in every once in a while and you allow it to stay longer than it should. Let's repent of that today. Maybe you're involved in a relationship right now that's completely inappropriate. You're either outside of uh, your own marriage bed or you're not married yet and you're in a relationship that's inappropriate where sexual activity is occurring. Repent of that today. Whatever God has you do, I want to invite you to be obedient in that as we sing together. Father, thank you for this moment. We pray, Lord, in this moment that we would hear you, that we would listen to you, and that we would be obedient in this area. God, these words are hard. It's tough to hear. It's tough to speak. But God, this is your word. Help us to follow it. In Jesus' name.